Welcome to Mainly History, your go-to podcast for conversations about mostly Maine and mainly history. I'm your host, Ian Saxine. I'm guessing that when you think about old paintings, something like the Mona Lisa hanging in the Louvre comes to mind. But like all other artwork, most paintings were fairly ordinary. Today's show focuses on an important subset of Maine's earliest painters, the itinerants who traveled from place to place, painting portraits for paying customers. But who were these artists? Who paid them? Who did they paint? And what can studying their work tell us about 19th century Mainers? We'll talk about that and why even the customers who came out looking funny to us might have been okay with the finished product. And not to worry, we'll find out if any Mainers commissioned paintings of beloved pets. I promise not to overgeneralize, but this conversation may paint in broad brushstrokes. Let's do this. My guest today is Diana Greenwald, Curator of American Art at the Portland Museum of Art. Diana, welcome to Mainly History. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while because I confess that one of my true artistic passions is ugly paintings and ugly art that is just not famous and doesn't really seem like it belongs in a museum. And when sometimes I've been to, you know, historical homes or whatnot, and I see these really homely, misshapen, homemade portraits made by somebody who nobody remembers. And I always love those. They remind me of my own time in art class in high school my own miserable, miserable efforts. I was hoping today that we could talk about these and the more talented versions of what folks in the art field call vernacular art. Absolutely. And we have some, some wonderful examples at the, at the Portland Museum of Art. And I'm so interested that you use the term ugly. Uh, I think it's something that we can put a little pressure on over the course of the conversation, because I think it is it is subject to interpretation, but I know what you were getting at. Sure. Oh, and I want to be clear. All these people are more talented than me. I'm think- <laughs> so like, I'm thinking of the artistic equivalent of the burnt cookies or something that like, it doesn't, there's just something not right about it. And yet people still buy it and hang it on their walls because, you know, it's 1750 and this is what's, this is what's available. Mm-hmm. And so I guess to begin with, would you mind telling us a bit about if we're looking at the earliest paintings that we know of that have survived from Maine, how far back do these go? That's a good question. And so I can't speak to the collections necessarily at, say, like the Maine State Museum or, or Maine Historical Society, but the stuff that we'd be looking at in the PMA's collection is probably going to be around the kind of late 1700s. So yes, the kind of like 1780s, 1790s, the the earliest, earliest materials in our collection are actually decorative arts. So we'd be talking Mm. like pre-revolutionary silver, things like that. But our portraits almost totally date post-revolution. Okay. Now, 
paintings in particular in terms of genres of art. I mm -hmm. think most people and myself included, uh, when we think about paintings in museums, we generally think about stuff by somebody famous, you know, and really talented like a Van Gogh or a Da Vinci or a Trumbull. So somebody extremely talented, possibly famous, and yeah, usually male um, and white as well. And of course, there's plenty of paintings done by people who were none of those things. And then, of course, especially people who were not famous. When did the business of itinerant portraiture really pick up in Maine? And who were the kinds of people who made a living doing this? So in Maine, it really does pick up around the beginning of the 19th century. So the flourishing of this moment is pretty much kind of like 1820s, 1830s, and 1840s. And the types of people who were becoming itinerant portraitists, um, it's largely a group of men, it's largely a group of, of white men, but that's not expressly the case. So for instance, in the PMA's collection, we have um, the work by a wonderful artist named Susan or Susanna Payne, who was a female itinerant portraitist who made a living after a divorce uh, as, a, as a painter moving around Maine and New England. But by and large, we're talking about men who, who often came from apprenticeships in different trades. So uh, a lot of folks who were coming from carpentry, a lot of folks who were coming from sign painting, because really this, the notion of, of them as painters is, is almost as, as another trade at this moment. So there's an evolving notion of that like elevated art and craft of painting. Um, but for these guys, it's, it's really thinking about painting and, and painting production as, as almost another trade. So, um, so is this a side gig for them to use a modern term or do they, are they doing it full time? So it, it's an interesting question. Um, I mean, most of them are moving around to different towns and painting full time, but by no means are they doing specifically portraitures full time. So a lot of them are also painting signs. A lot of them are doing silhouette cuts or they are painting miniatures. So there's a little bit of a jack of all trades aspect to it. There are some wonderful examples too of folks like Rufus Porter who are also at the same time doing murals in houses or doing kind of amateur, in the case of Porter, some really interesting inventing. Uh, he's someone who, uh, who actually goes on to found Scientific American. So, um, so for a lot of them, they're doing a variety of things as they're moving from place to place. Okay. Why is it that in the 1820s or so that the itinerant painter becomes a rising phenomenon? Is there something about the tools or the technology or people's disposable income do you think that makes the 1820s the real pickup time? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I do think it's probably enough families having enough income and enough interest in having a sort of durable legacy of their family and wanting that portraiture that that emulates the kind of more urban elite way of memorializing oneself, right? So we've had the Gilbert Stewarts of, of the United States who are working in, um, in larger cities and also, in fact, in places like Maine. But their families are, are I think, gathering enough kind of income and, and rootedness in spaces that they're wanting to have instances where they're, they're able to have those same kinds of portraits available in their own homes. Because okay. really, the technology for making these things doesn't change significantly. And it's a, it's a pretty spare set of tools. So these portraitists are moving around with, with their easels, with their canvases, and with a pretty limited set of paints. But that's fairly fixed during this time. In the 1820s, say like a farm family that owns their own property living in like Topsum or something like that, how much is a portrait going to cost them? 
That's a good question. I mean, my sense is um, that there's still fairly significant economic output at that time. This still means a lot and and does represent a pretty a pretty you know like market invest investment for for a family. So I, my guess is they're running like twenty to thirty dollars, but at that time, that's obviously means means a lot more than it does than it does today. Right. Um, and it's a, it's a time investment too. So although itinerant portraitists, um, unlike the folks who you would sit for like Gilbert Stewart or, or Copley, somebody like that, they're doing it much more quickly. These are still, they're time investments too on the part of these families to, um, to spend the time sitting for these portraits and to, um, to have that person in their, in their home and, and spending time kind of creating this, this thing for them. In these portraits painted by the itinerants that you've seen, is it more typical to have the whole family gathered for these or are these individual portraits? More often than not, we're talking about individual portraits. So these are things that, I mean, if you think about why we take big formal family photographs today, like they're, they're, for, um, they're for events often. So you'll see often things called pendant portraits where we have a husband and a wife who've elected on the event of their marriage to have um, a portrait painted of one and then the other. There certainly are instances when itinerant portraitists will paint a family, but um, but by and large, we're seeing single individuals and there's sort of a, a template to a lot of these. So they're often three quarter length, um, which means you're kind of seeing chest up to head. They're often fairly simple surroundings, although some of the portraitists in our collection have taken a lot of interest in some of the trappings of, of the spaces that these sitters are sitting in. But often they're these single portraits created sometimes, as I said, as a pair. And that's the way that's and portrait just are kind of almost using using a template as they're moving from place to place so that they're that three quarter length figure is is fairly fixed in in their of and they're doing when they're going to a certain place they're attending to the details of that individual sitter in the face but you'll see a lot of say consistency across a lot of these images we have a portrait uh, a pair of portraits by Royal Brewster Smith of Hannah Edwards and Maria McClellan Edwards who are a mother and daughter but are basically indistinguishable in terms of the because the setting is is exactly the same and essentially it feels like one of them got up the other one sat down so there, there are ways in which the time-saving techniques come in in a lot of instances for these portraits to have these forms that feel pretty set. Now there, sometimes you see photographs of 19th century Americans and they're holding particular tools or things that they're, they're proud of. Were there any people you saw who posed for these portraits, you know, holding tools or books or something else that they, that they thought said something meaningful about themselves? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so those Royal Brewster Smith portraits that I was mentioning, for instance, they're um, both of the women are holding books in their um, in their left hand. So that's often something that you'll see, and often it's something liturgical. These are families that, in many cases, are fairly religious and are hoping to express that sense of piety in the physical manifestation of a painted image. So you get a lot of instances where you see Bibles or things like that. Um, that that notion of erudition also comes up in something like Susan Payne's portrait. Of of J.H. Corbett, who's in our collection. So he's holding a newspaper. Interestingly, also the pendant portrait to that of his wife. She's got this wonderful set of embroidery tools. So she's got her needle and her thread and this lovely thimble and a set of scissors. So she's also then expressing um, her own dexterity with, um, with an ability 
to do this kind of fine needlework in that context. So you absolutely do see these sitters interested in holding particular objects or having particular pieces around them that give you a sense of what they're good at, also how they kind of live morally in the world. So hence a lot of that, um, a lot of that allusion to, to the Bible or to, um, to texts that have to do with religious ceremony. What about beloved family pets? <laughs> we, we definitely have instances. We've got in our collection, the, one of the sort of like scariest kittens I've ever seen. I think it's, <laughs> it's meant to be a kitten. It looks, it looks a lot like an enormous rat. Um, but definitely, <laughs> That's the kind of stuff that I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, and I'm trying to remember now exactly who the painter on that is, but uh, there are definitely instances, particularly with images of children, where you get you get those <laughs> those animals that are uh, a little more crudely rendered, let's say, and have a little bit of um, some some funky character to them. So that one's definitely up on the walls, and we get a lot of comments about um, exactly what what type of animal we're talking about. Now, are these animals? I imagine sometimes it's people holding a cat or like a, a dog or something. But are there also? Yep. Do some families just commission? portraits of like their favorite pig or dog or whatever? Good question. Um, so I've seen that more in photography uh, mm. is like, at least in the context of our collection, we, um, we have some great pet photography of uh, the kind of early 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century. And I'm sure it happened. I have to assume it happened. But if you're going to spend the time and money, I think particularly for these more middle-class families, you're probably going to commit to humans. Okay. Okay. I just thought, yeah, maybe you had some rich person who had a, a prize pig or whatever, or, you know, <laughs> we and they have... were like, I would like to pose my pig, you know. I mean, I love the idea. And there's definitely, I mean, if we're, if we're thinking about folks like Edward Hicks and the Peaceable Kingdom, things like things like that's that's sort of very famous images of um, American wilderness and the like wonderful fecundity of our nation at that moment. There's often a like lovely attention to details of animals, um, and certainly also for a lot of these landowners, there's interest in showing sort of all that can be gleaned from from their lands. So there are definitely instances where you're seeing cattle and pigs and all of that kind of stuff. But like those animals, particularly as like key sitters, like I think a little bit less so. Although having said that, I know that we do have, um, we do have at least one pit bull portrait from oh. dating from the 19th century. Um, so, <laughs> nice. so yeah, it happened from time to time. Okay. Going back to our, our sort of uh, hypothetical middle-class farm family from Topsom or Yarmouth or something. Once perhaps the husband and wife of this family pose for their portraits, where in their house are they going to put them? Is this like a, a dining room thing? Do they have pride of place? Where are they going in, in most of the homes? Yeah, they absolutely do. And for families who have the setup for it, these are often placed in parlors. So they are in the public spaces of a house because they do become very much that kind of outward manifestation of what a family wants you to understand about them. So this is you in your very best light. This is you when you've gotten all dolled up in either your best clothing or sometimes the portraitist has actually come with a costume that you might be putting on. And because you've expended this time, because you've put money into it and because you've been very selective about how you want yourself presented, this is something that you want in your public space. Many people today think of 
19th century folks as, as being particularly serious, you know, and the, the pictures are all serious and everything else. And I know that we, we have evidence of kind of whimsical or goofy posed photographs. Have you seen any evidence, even of just among rich families, of families posing for like whimsical portraits that are not serious? That's a great question. I mean, I think I would, I would say, first off, I would say that like, that the seriousness that we read into a lot of these portraits is also something that is very much related to presentation and to, to the kind of values that these, these people are interested in presenting. So that what might read as kind of dour or off-putting or intense to our eyes, I think had a language of seriousness of purpose or piety to the people who are reading these portraits at that moment. So, so just off the bat, I would say that there's a little bit of kind of difference in terms of how we understand that. That having sure. been said, I, I would say definitely when you're talking about portraits of children and particularly a little later on in the century when that, that notion of childhood really gets sort of codified a lot better when you've got enlightenment ideas of, of actually letting kids be kids and kids be different from tiny grownups. So you see images of children who are wearing dress that's different from adults and who are playing with toys and who are holding rattles and who have the weird shaped rat kitten hanging out with them. Those are moments when you get more levity and more fun. So there are definitely instances when you've got, you know, a baby who's maybe like looking in the other direction or, or trying to escape its mother's arms, things like that, that feel feel more spontaneous, feel less stiff, less posed. But yeah, it, it tends to be at least in, in like, I'm flipping through my like early portraiture Rolodex in my head. It, it tends to be much more with images of children that that notion of, of adults goofing off. I think you see, you see less of, I mean, it, expressively though, certainly when you're thinking of, about works by say Gilbert Stewart, he's someone who becomes, and he is not an itinerant portraitist. He has his own studio. He's very well-respected. His, his works are, are fetching huge prices, but somebody like him, it, he's, he's well-known for kind of capturing the sort of intelligence or the playfulness of a sitter in nuances of expression or in the way an eye twinkles, things like that. So it's not, it is not expressly that these folks kind of come across as a little cold um, or, or kind of stiff, that, that there certainly are portraits of this moment where you're getting a lot more kind of nuance in, in expression mm -hmm. and pose. Thinking about the change over time of this era, when would you say the, the kind of golden age of itinerant portraiture in Maine was? If it starts in the 1820s, does it run until photography becomes cheap enough and good enough to replace it? Or does it last beyond that? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's 1820s to 1840s-ish as, as a moment when these folks are traveling, traveling in spaces in Maine, doing these quite liberally across, uh, across a lot of smaller towns and spaces. I think you're right that photography, photography doesn't become super accessible to a lot of these folks until really later in the 19th century. So these portraits do have a, a have a durée in terms of being these seeing these items and objects that are important to families for um, for that kind of outward presentation. So yeah, I mean, it's that sort of middle of the 19th century that um, that they're serving an important purpose, and that these painters are, are all over New England with a real market. Thinking about the PMA collections, do you have any favorite works by itinerant portraitists that you, you have in your collections? 
I do. So I mentioned earlier Royal Brewster Smith and, and Hannah Edwards and Maria McClellan Edwards. These are two women who they're dolled up in, in their absolutely best clothes. And the thing that I love about this pair of portraits is the attention to the lace in their ruffs and also on the, the head coverings that they're wearing. And it's, it's just this wonderful detail and attention to surface and to pattern that I think is so, so wonderful. It, it's also notable in these that for all of the beauty and detail that Royal Brewster Smith uses to get those all of that nuance in the texture of the textile, um, they've got sort of like to not put too fine a point on it, but like more unattractive faces that we're accustomed <laughs> to seeing. More, most importantly, they've got uh, they've got these sort of shadows on um, on their faces. That when I when I put these up recently, I had a lot of guests commenting that they um, they almost looked like they had five o'clock shadows. That these um, it's it's really uh, they're they're severe looking women, and they they are they've got just like this weird shading across their faces, which is which is a funny thing, and and. I, I wasn't doing them a ton of justice, but I did actually, I put them up in close proximity to some of our Gilbert Stewarts too. And as I mentioned, he's a kind of master of nuance and expression, which Royal Brewster Smith is not. Um, he is really interested, as I said, in, in those details of surface pattern. Like there's this wonderful sort of like zebra or leopard print going on in the sofa behind these two women. Um, so, so he's really interested in texture and pattern. And that's, that's probably because he likely started life as a sign painter or as a furniture painter. So that pattern and texture interest comes very naturally to him, but it leads to these like weird disjunctions and images like this, where you get extremely, extremely detailed things like um, attention to lace, but these sort of like very funky kind of facial features and expressions. So that's definitely a favorite of mine. I wonder and, what these people thought, like they sit for this portrait and they're like, oh man, this guy was just fascinated by our couch and he painted me all weird. Ugh. I think that's what they were, they were interested in. I think it's really, I think it's what oh. they wanted. So, okay. I mean, because honestly, like if you're at this moment and you are Hannah Edwards or or Maria McClellan Edwards, by far the most expensive thing in your wardrobe is that darn lace. So it is it mm. is important to you to show that off to whoever's coming through your doors that you do that you have this stuff that these are I mean, it, it, it's middle class, it's a middle class interest in kind of showing wealth, showing sophistication. And a lot of that happened through surface adornment, whether that was clothing, or whether that was the type of hide that you had on your sofa. So there's an interest, I think, in these in these middle class families having that stuff really kind of brought to the fore. And and it's also I, I kind of began to articulate this, but it really is there's there's a language and a taxonomy to these types of portraits. So it wouldn't, I think, have been the assumption that this would come out as a painting that had a ton of specificity to, say, like the nose or the eye, um, mm -hmm. that the elongated hands, that the flatness of the composition, that the fact that one point perspective just went out the window, those things weren't read as sort of like not having done one's job properly. In fact, these are being read as having done one's job perfectly, because these are the types of paintings that these men and women are seeing around and because there does become a kind of vocabulary to it. And so I think that's, that's something that gets lost sometimes when we're looking at these and we can, it's easy for us sort of with a nuanced perspective and with an understanding of the kind of history of art and to, to just sort of like pass these off as like, well, they were just crummy at faces or whatever. 
but there really is, there's a language to them. There's, and there's a real dexterity in some of the detail that they're, that they're spending a ton of time on. Like for Smith, it's, it's about spending time on that lace more so than spending time really getting the nose to look right or whatever it is. I'm glad you bring that up because different audiences and, and subjects, they care about different things. And mm-hmm. it's important for me and, and the rest of us moderns to remember that somebody sitting down in 1825 is not necessarily going to care about the same things that perhaps we might if we're sitting down for a portrait or just a picture or whatever. Uh, I'm even reminded, and this will sound like a stretch, but uh, it just made me think of uh, George Catlin, the the Western painter who painted so many Native Americans on the on the Great Plains. I remember reading accounts of him him painting some of these these people, and sometimes he had uh, if he tried to paint them in profile, they wouldn't like it, and they wanted their perspective was well, why would I only want you to portray half of my face or half of my body? That looks weird. I want you to see the whole thing. And so he had a very hard time persuading anybody to sort of sit in these kind of profiles because they didn't really want to. And it made me think of some of these other subjects of portraits in 19th century America in say Maine, who they want to show you all the stuff they have, right? And Mm -hmm. so part of the portrait for them is, look, we're holding all of our best books or we've got all these things and we want you to know this about us. And we're going to- Exactly. You see some of those pictures, right? The actual photographs for the family. It seems like they drag half of the stuff they own into the picture to remind everybody like, no, 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 we're a good family and look at all the stuff we've got. And we want you to know that, that we have this. Exactly. And, and if you imagine that this is something that's probably a once or twice in a lifetime experience, this is your one shot to get all of that in the frame. So you're even more invested in, in making sure that that's around and available. And I suppose I hadn't really thought about this, but you know, maybe that hypothetical family in, in Yarmouth, again, it's not like they're worried that their friends and neighbors aren't going to know what their nose really looks like. And so if you're trying to show off to your friends, maybe what really matters to you is, yeah, getting the lace right. And even if your fingers look stretched out or funky or something that nobody's really going to care. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. There's actually, there's a wonderful picture. I, I wasn't sure when to pull it into the conversation, but that's in the Fenimore Museum that's called The Itinerant Artist by Charles Bird King. And it gives you this wonderful sense of what being an artist at this moment would have been like. So coming into a home that, as you can see from the painting, is you can see all that he's leaving out versus all that he's electing to put in. So you see the sitter and she's wearing her fancy bonnet and she's wearing her nicest clothes, but, um, but all around her, she's got like the kids and she's got like the smoky kitchen that's in off to one side. There's hides hanging from the ceiling. Her husband's going out with a gun probably to do some hunting. So you do, you get a real sense of the fact that these are very selective snippets of life. And there are, and it's a very deliberate effort on the part of these sitters to present certain aspects of their position. Interesting. It's a really interesting painting. I totally recommend um, taking a closer look because it's got a lot going on. It's, it's a genre scene, but it gives you it gives you a sense too of the tools that they're coming with. So um, so this artist has this, you know, just a pretty modest set of paints that's at his feet, but he's got like a nosy grandma who's pointing at the painting, I'm sure 
you know, attempting to make some change or alteration. Um, <laughs> so it, it gives you a sense too of just the fact that there are a lot of, a lot of voices, I'm sure, when you walk into someone's home to do these types of things, which is, which is I think something that we don't think about all that much either. But what, what it means to be an itinerant painter is that you walk into somebody's life and somebody's space rather than going to a fancy studio and being the sitter and the artist you know, one-on-one -on -one and having that expressive connection that this is happening within the bustle of everyday life for these people. This is making me wonder now, because thinking coming off of this year of so much work being done via Zoom, uh -huh. uh, if any of these people posing for portraits or photographs, if they did the equivalent of kind of the work mullet, where, you know, it's the business on top, PJs on the bottom or whatever, and like, have you, have you ever encountered any, any evidence of somebody talking about that? That's really interesting. Um, so the thing that it makes me think of is that um, certainly for early portrait photography, um, because those exposure times were so long, there were often behind sitters like a fairly extensive apparatuses to keep them like their posture good and to keep them up straight. So that while you're looking at someone who appears, you know, totally up on their own in the front, what you've got in the back is like this whole apparatus that's keeping them, <laughs> it's keeping them like <laughs> upright and still for the amount of time that it's gonna take for that photograph to actually get a proper exposure. So there are certainly instances of that, but you're thinking about sort of like the messiness of everyday life kind of like creeping in, creeping in on the sides in terms of, in terms of the paintings, I think less so. Okay. Um, because I think there would have been a, a back and forth sort of between artist and sitter so that the opportunities for some of that serendipity probably weren't, weren't kosher for lack of a better term. Sure, sure. Um, but you see like in this, again, in this King painting, you do, you do see the fact that, that there is sort of all of that messiness and bustle absolutely happening, whether or not it gets visualized ultimately or not. So thinking about what these people cared about and how sometimes earlier eras, they're trying to convey some sort of a message or reality. And visually it comes across as peculiar to modern audiences. And so I'm thinking my favorite example of this is the baby Jesus with the adult head and face from yep. medieval art to show mm -hmm. us all that Jesus was always at heart an adult man, even when an infant. Uh, and of course now it just looks like these creepy Wallace Shawn type looking babies in, in the medieval art section. Is there something like that for itinerant portraiture where there was some reality that these people were trying to convey that just doesn't really translate to the untrained eye in the 21st century? I mean, I think that whole notion of the perspective being bad is a really interesting one and sort of size and scale being like to our eyes sort of grossly off. And I think that came, it comes into focus much more for me when you understand a history and a tradition of say religious painting, where if a person is more important, they're bigger or whether, you know, if there's, if there's something to be emphasized, they are physically larger in a space. That notion of perspectival looking, it's not the only way of painting or generating a work of art. It wasn't the most important aspect of the way that these works got made. So what is interesting and important is not that, again, like the hand looks perfectly proportioned or that the mutton sleeve looks, you know, like exactly in, in relation to the rest of the gown or that the shoulders seem to slope at a particular angle. Those preoccupations, just like they're not the point. 
so that these weird fluctuations in scale and size at these moments when you feel like you're looking up at a floor that you're getting, you know, all of the detail in, in tiling and tiling and all of those kind of crazy textures and patterns sort of at one time together, like that's what's interesting. And that's what's important to the people who are absorbing these portraits. So that the ways in which these bodies often look sort of distended or bizarre, it's, it's sort of, I mean, it's funny and weird for us today, but it really isn't, I don't think it was, it was market or notable in the same way for the people who were taking a look at these at that time. Now, do you have any favorite paintings in the PMA collection that really were maybe by some artist who he just wasn't that good at being able to draw like noses or something, you know, and no matter, no matter, no matter what this person tried, they just weren't very talented at the actual portrayal of these things. I mean, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, for instance, we've got a portrait by John Brewster of Mary McClellan. And she, speaking of, you know, people who look super serious, like she is just, she is dour. Um, <laughs> and she's got like a really kind of lumpy uh, sort of shawl situation going on, but she's staring directly at you as the viewer or at the, at the portraitist. And I think what, what an interesting thing about John Brewster, this is John Brewster Jr., is that he was a deaf portraitist. So there's actually been interesting writing about the fact that there, um, that kind of like holding the gaze and the intensity of, of looking is something that comes out in his portraits, specifically because he didn't have a kind of verbal communication with his sitters. Oh. Um, yeah, which is interesting. But I mean, just in terms of in terms of someone who is definitely still trying his hand at figuring out space and proportion, like she's got she's got a particularly long arm that you see in the front of this picture, her lap kind of seems to disappear almost entirely. So it is certainly one of these instances where what is an interesting and important to this painter uh, is absolutely not kind of getting her body or her proportions right on, but that it is like that, that interesting engagement with the with the Painter is absolutely there. And, and like a lot of these other images, it's the fan that she's holding that becomes a real subject of attention and detail. So he spends tons of time actually getting the color and the texture of the fan that she's holding, uh, you know, like totally right. And that's like almost translucent quality of it too. So he's got a very dark background, which was typical of these portraits, but you get the sense of light sort of coming through that paper or silk fan in this beautiful way. So like so many of his compatriots, it's definitely like a, a real kind of lumpy and distended body. But mm. when he gets to that fan, like that's where he's focusing attention and interest. Okay. Do you have any rare works by people because maybe they just didn't find a lot of work because they weren't that good? So it's like, <laughs> ah, yes, that's Stanley, the three hit wonder of the 1830s because everybody else fired him once they saw what he did or something like that. Um, I mean, the ones that I actually really dig are um, these Susan Payne works that I mentioned because okay. she she's unusual in that she is a, a female itinerant portraitist. And she's got this really interesting biography where she's someone who learns in needlework, which, which I actually think is also an interesting sort of dual artistic training because I think that that has a lot to do with surface also, uh, surface detail texture. So she learns as originally as an embroiderer, which was pretty typical for her time, but uh, she gets a divorce from an abusive husband, which is also quite unusual um, in, in this period. And then she has to make her way. She's got a daughter. Um, so in order to make money, she begins painting portraits. And she is, you know, she's not like 
like they are very much of this moment. They uh, similarly to a lot of our portraits, not real lookers, a lot of these sitters. Um, <laughs> and those proportions are, are often pretty funky. Uh, but we've got these two examples and she didn't do, she didn't do a ton of them. And again, she's unusual as, as one of the few kind of women who's, who's making her mark in this way and who tries to make her mark actually specifically with portraits of women. So we have this great advertisement too from a Portland newspaper when she comes up here that she's suggesting that she's got particular nuance in depicting women because she herself is a woman. Oh, um, what year was that? I'm trying to remember when, so we don't, the, the actual advertisement I, yeah. We don't have in our collection, but okay. um, it's been published. But it's 1830s that she's okay. that she's here in Portland, 1820s, 1830s. She comes back a couple times. And she's kind of all over New England too. Cape Ann has a nice collection of a couple of her works. But yeah, she's not she's not great, but she's she's got this kind of niche, and she's she's interesting for the fact that she is female in this typically very male dominated space. So people who visit the now once again open PMA looking to find. Uh, vernacular portraits uh, done by itinerants. Where in the PMA can they find them? We have peppered them throughout, but in our largely on our second floor in our early American galleries is probably the space you're gonna um, you're gonna get your greatest concentration uh, of these works, um, and also some in a room that we have specifically dedicated to work by Maine artists, which is in mm. um, our Lorenzo de Medici sweat wing. In some of our older galleries, we, we have a room that's specifically dedicated to main artwork. So those are the, the two major spaces where you'll find these. Hmm. Do you have a favorite painting by an itinerant portraitist in the collections? Um, I have to say, I, having done a kind of brief scan of our collection, the, um, the Susan Payne portrait of Mrs. J.H. Corbett is a pretty wonderful one both for the fact that I'm into Susan Payne as a female itinerant portraitist, but also um, she's got this exuberant pink bow that I think is, um, is just kind of wonderful, as well as this hairpiece that's got a lot going on and some pretty fantastic curls. And she is also one of these sitters, as I mentioned, who was excited to tell the world about her dexterity as a seamstress and as someone who could work with a needle and thread. So she's got these beautiful implements that are in front of her. So it's, it's an interesting portrait. Um, but also um, one that I, I like particularly because of, because of Susan Payne as a, as a painter. Is that displayed somewhere in the PMA right now? That is not up at the moment, um, oh, okay. but should be. Well, if it is, I will spread the word. Uh, <laughs> let me know so that the people can come see it. So thinking about vernacular art that the people bought, in an earlier episode, I spoke with Lori Labar from the Maine State Museum about quilting. But what were the other, besides portraits and then quilts, what were the other artworks that Mainers bought from each other in the early 19th century? Yeah, there was a, a big variety. So another thing that itinerant artists were doing a lot of was silhouettes at this time. In addition to having people who were in and around spaces commissioning portraits, there were also um, silhouette artists who were bringing these things called Sometimes they were just doing doing these silhouettes, cutting them freehand. Sometimes they were using this wonderful device called a physiognotrace, which allows you to trace, basically trace a shadow and to do it 
large scale, but then have a, a kind of another implement that's doing it small scale at the same moment, tracing your actions. A lot of folks who maybe necessarily wouldn't be able to afford a portrait could afford a silhouette. So we have a nice collection of those. And another visual piece of the puzzle that's always really interested me and that's rich in our collection are works by women in, in embroidery and in samplers. So we have a really nice collection of samplers, as well as these really interesting morning embroideries that are often both watercolor and embroidery and silk that become these really lovely and interesting records of families and of women's work at this moment. And those similarly would have been kind of public objects that would have gone in a place like a parlor and that would have been these records of the of the families, the women in the family of their kind of dexterity, but also around their piety too. So they often are, are images of public mourning. But again, with this, with the the language of mourning being kind of very codified at that moment. So you see across so many of them, Grecian symbols and willow trees and, and all sorts of really stable imagery and vocabulary across them, but, um, but gives you a real sense of what a lot of these families were interested in, in putting forward at that moment. So that, that morning embroidery set is something that I really love, that I'd love to be thinking about and doing a little more work on and that we have a lot of great examples of in the collection. So speaking of your collection, what are some of the upcoming exhibits at the PMA and what do you guys have that's new right now? Yeah, so at the moment, we are showing an exhibition called Untitled, which is all contemporary art that was made in Maine in the last year. So uh, our kind of opportunity to be thinking about what our community was up to during this extremely... extremely difficult moment for everyone, but particularly for artists in the region. And coming up this summer, we're really excited. We are showing uh, the work of David Driscoll, who was basically kind of like the father of African-American art history, but beautiful, beautiful paintings and prints. And he actually passed away this year. So it became the, the work or the exhibition has been ongoing for the development of it for several years, but it's also becoming kind of a lovely tribute to to someone who spent a lot of time in Maine and who is a real kind of giant in the field of 20th century art. Sounds great. So final questions. What is something that you are up to or recently have produced that our audience should look into? I am about to have an essay published in a Smithsonian American Art Museum catalog that actually isn't related specifically to early America, but does take that through line of, of women artists and, um, and thinking about embroidery and needlework. So it's for an exhibition catalog that is for a show that's coming up about um, Venice and, and art making and Americans in Venice at the turn of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have an essay uh, in that catalog that has to do with Italian American lace makers. So that's something to, uh, that I'm excited about having published soon. And um, in terms of exhibitions that are coming up at the PMA, I'm about to open a a small-ish exhibition that features some of our arts and crafts ceramics in conversation with some painting and some photography. So thinking about the arts and crafts movement in the early 20th century. Oh, sounds very interesting. Mm -hmm. And then what is something that somebody else is up to that you think our audience should check out? So if you are into these, um, these kind of early American portraits, miniatures, and thinking about this kind of early, early 19th century or mid 19th century moment, I definitely recommend Rufus Porter's Curious World, the catalog for that exhibition, which was a show that um, the Bowdoin College Museum of Art put on 
uh, this past year and was the very hard work of two colleagues, Justin Wolf and Laura Sprague, who really delved into Rufus Porter, who was uh, an itinerant painter, miniaturist, um, did a lot of house murals, but as I said, also an amateur inventor um, and just a really fascinating polymath. So the catalog for that show is terrific. Oh, great. Now, is the show, the show's no longer running? The show is no longer up. So it's, it's Surviving Archive is this, is this terrific catalog. So that catalog is available for purchase online? Yes, exactly. Oh, okay, great. I will post the link to that on our Twitter account. Diana Greenwald, thank you so much. Hopefully we will speak again soon. Wonderful, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's our show. Hopefully it was more fun than listening to paint dry. For links to the books mentioned in this episode, and so that you don't miss out on all the excitement, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Mainly History. Also, we'll be hosting our first ever live show on Facebook Live on our new Mainly History Facebook page on June 17th at 7.30 p.m. Eastern. Special guests Alexander Montgomery and Crystal and Shevland, as well as yours truly, present, for the judgment of a live audience, our cases for which colonial American should be recognized as the crown prince of corruption. Maine and New England will, of course, be well represented, but don't be surprised if the South puts up a good fight. Then, our next recorded episode features Shanette Garrett-Scott joining us to discuss an important intersection of Maine and Mississippi history after the Civil War when Maine-born Adelbert Ames served as governor of Mississippi during the Reconstruction era. His time in office was marked by a dramatic rise in black political participation after the Civil War, while ending at the hands of domestic terrorists. Don't miss our discussion of a time when democracy was literally under attack and its consequences for our own day. That's next time on Mainly History.